cold dive. I'm Lucas, aka Corona Kirby, and this is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and all the things she said running through my head. This week I'd like to do a special episode on MPC and the head protocols. This is a family of protocols for doing zero-knowledge proofs. And compared to other approaches like ZK Snarks, they occupy sort of a different point in the design space. MPC and the head protocols make different trade-offs, which means that they're quite complementary to SNARKs. I think there are fewer situations where they're obviously the best choice, but in those few situations, they offer some compelling advantages over just using SNARKs, which is why I think they're quite interesting and really underloved. And in isolation from all of these engineering and popularity concerns, they're also quite elegant protocols in my view. And a lot simpler than you might think as well, which is always a sign of a good protocol when it's simple and easy to understand. So I guess first let's start with a bit of background. Uh, let's go over zero-knowledge proofs, at least a tad. I think many of my listeners might have at least heard of zero-knowledge proofs, if not have a lot of familiarity with them, and I don't think I'll be able to explain them from scratch here. Thankfully, there's a larger amount of resources on what zero-knowledge proofs are and what they can do on the internet, and I'm certainly not the first person to attempt to explain them even in podcast form, but I'll have to give it a go anyways. So I like to think of cryptographic instructions first at like a high level. So what a zero knowledge proof is trying to accomplish is it's giving you a way to convince someone that some kind of statement is true. So let's say that I'm getting audited by a tax agency. So they want to make sure that I paid the correct amount of tax. So I want to demonstrate to them that based on my income and my assets, the amount of tax I paid last year was, was correct. So one way of doing this is I hand over all of my financial documents and then they check using their algorithm, their recipe, which tells them how much tax I should be paying based on these amounts whether or not that matches up with the amount I did actually pay. So this is actually a proof in some sense, because I'm proving to them that I paid the correct amount of tax, but I'm doing it by revealing a bunch of private information about me. They're learning a lot more than just whether or not I paid my taxes correctly. You know, whether or not I paid my taxes correctly, that's one bit of information. Here they may have learned all of the bank accounts I have, all of the transactions I've done over the year. And that's a lot more information than just, are you a tax cheat or not? So with a zero knowledge proof, the idea would be instead of sending all of this information, you send some kind of object they can inspect and which convinces them that you did pay your taxes correctly, but which doesn't allow them to learn any information about the financial records you use to compute that succinct not necessarily succinct, but that proof. 
I guess since I mentioned succinct, I should should go over that too. So with your financial documents, if you send them all over, we have the disadvantage that they're private and you may not want to do that. So that's the zero knowledge aspect of it. But since they're very large, you may not want to do that just because it's impractical to send that much data over. You know, if I'm sending wheelbarrows full of paper documents, that's usually doing, <laughs> I'm usually trying to harass the agency with sort of malicious compliance if I'm doing that kind of, of document bombing. So it'd be nice if you could create a small proof which demonstrates that these large amounts of records match up with the amount of tax I paid. And so that's succinctness. And this is why people are interested in Starks, which are succinct zero-knowledge proofs. And some people even care just about the succinctness and not even about the zero-knowledge. So blockchains are kind of interested in this for scalability. You want to be able to prove that a lot of transactions are correct in a small amount of, of space, and a succinct proof will let you do that, because you prove that a whole big bag of transactions are correct without having to actually, you know, read and verify each transaction. And in many cases, you just care about this compression factor, and you don't even care about the zero-knowledge aspect. And in general, what, what makes zero-knowledge proofs difficult is achieving either zero-knowledge or succinctness. And I'd say succinctness is a bit harder. So what I mean by this is that if I don't need zero-knowledge or succinctness, it's very easy to prove stuff. I just send all the data because I don't need to hide it and I don't need to compress it. So I send you all the data, you run whatever recipe or algorithm or program you want to run on it, and you can be convinced that whatever needs to be satisfied is satisfied. You can be convinced that I pay my taxes correctly. Uh, you can be convinced that uh, I'm 21 years old or by looking at my passport, whatever. If you want to have zero knowledge, that becomes difficult. You need some cryptography to do that. If you want succinctness, you also need some cryptography to do that. If you want both, usually it's easier to add ZK to succinctness. Intuitively, if I have this small, you know, proof that represents the correctness of all of my financial records, there's just not that much information which can get its way through. There's just not that much uh, bandwidth left in the proof at that point. So adding ZK on top is usually relatively easy. But in isolation, adding ZK just from nothing can be difficult. And I guess that segues us into MPC and the head protocols. So with these protocols, let's sort of go over at a high level what uh, they can offer. So off the bat, they're usually not succinct. This isn't really a fundamental limitation. Uh, MPC in the head, as I'll get to in a bit, is really a, a broad paradigm for constructing zero-knowledge proofs. So you could actually make succinct proofs. And depending on what you count as succinct, some of them actually are technically that, such as Liguro, which uh, I'll get to later, hopefully. So first of all, not necessarily succinct. That's one thing. Definitely zero-knowledge. Uh, another consequence of succinctness is that verification takes longer the larger the program is. So with some snarks, no matter how large the program is, 
you have the same constant amount of verification time. So asymptotically, your verification time grows with O of 1. It's constant, flat. You might also have O of log n. So your growth is logarithmic in the proof size. If you're in the program size, sorry. If the program doubles in size, that only adds one unit of time to your verification time. If it, you know, is multiplied by 16, that's only four units of time, etc. Or maybe you have like log n squared, still, you know, roughly in that ballpark. So with snarks, you want very slow scaling. So with MPC in the head, on the other hand, in many cases, your verification time is going to be linear. So if the, as the program doubles in size, so does your verification time. Proof versus uh, complexity is also linear, I think in all cases. And this is sort of, I think, a lower bound because you need to read all of the input uh, just to make sure that it's correct uh, on your own, uh, let alone convince someone else that it's correct. But what's interesting with MPC and the head protocols is that they're not just asymptotically efficient in terms of achieving this lower bound for proving complexity, they're also concretely efficient. So with asymptotics, you just care about growth. Uh, I mentioned unit of time in an abstract way, but that unit of time could be seconds, days, or years, and it wouldn't change the asymptotics. If a, if a program of size n takes n years or n seconds to compute, that's the same asymptotics. But concretely, those are very different costs, of course. So if MPC in the head, you have much better concrete efficiency. So as an example, with uh, ZKBoo, a protocol I'm going to mention or talk about extensively in this podcast, hopefully, they had one benchmark where they wanted to prove the pre-image of a hash function. So you wanted to prove that you knew a secret value x, such that calculating the SHA-2 hash of that secret value yielded a public value. So this is, is useful in different contexts, but for the benchmark, proving was only, I think, 15 milliseconds or so, which if you compare to SNARKs, I think would be on the order of, of seconds. Uh, I'm not an expert on SNARK benchmarking, but that, that shows you the kind of order of magnitude difference you have. Uh, now, the disadvantage is that verification also takes 15 milliseconds. And as you get into large programs, it, it takes more and more time to verify your proofs as compared with SNARKs, where you can have very large programs and yet constant verification time, which is very, very slowly growing verification time. Uh, another advantage of MPC in the head, or an aspect of it, is that it works easily with Boolean circuits, or really, some protocols, arbitrary rings. So with most SNARKs, you need to work over a field. So with a field, you have multiplication addition, and so one example of a field would be like numbers modulo 13 prime number. So usually you work with a large prime number, and often you choose a specific field for optimization purposes, like you need a, the field which corresponds to the field of scalars of some elliptic curve. For, for some snarks like uh, growth 16, I think you need that to be the case. Sometimes even it needs to correspond to a pairing curve for stuff to work out. So that's sort of a limitation. And another thing you might want to do is work with rings. So I mentioned addition multiplication. If you take 
the native way a CPU works, it's actually mod 2 to the 64, if you have 64-bit registers. And actually, if you do multiplication and addition that sort of wraps around, this forms what we call a ring. It's not a field because you can multiply, say, 2 to the 32 by itself and get 0. So that makes it not a field. And this can sort of mess up many snark protocols if you just try to naively use a ring instead of a field. But having a ring as a potential thing you could use would mean that you could directly take programs that would run on a CPU and try to put them in your zero-knowledge proof. That's, that's quite interesting. So if you're doing a lot of like arithmetic uh, on a CPU and you want to prove stuff about that arithmetic, having a ring circuit would be interesting. And Boolean circuits, I think, are in general sort of a better target than arithmetic circuits because they more closely match the programs people write. So we've been writing programs targeting you know, CPUs and, and, and hardware for quite a long time, so there's just so much tooling around generating assembly instructions. And translating assembly into Boolean circuits is much easier than trying to translate assembly into arithmetic circuits. I think I went over this in the first episode of the podcast quite ex extensively, or at least a little bit. And when you try to do rare programs with arithmetic circuits, you sort of have to sort of add in extra steps. Where at the Boolean circuits, you can sort of natively represent the operations. The disadvantage, of course, is usually that if you just naively do stuff with Boolean circuits, you pay the cost of a field operation for each Boolean operation, which isn't great. Uh, for example, one thing you can do is you can embed a Boolean circuit in a larger field, a binary field, where you have sort of equivalence of 0 and 1. And if you just do that, you have this huge cost blow up. Ideally, what you'd want is that, you know, if an arithmetic operation, you can think of it as sort of like many Boolean operations, and so you'd want each Boolean operation to be much less expensive than those arithmetic operations in comparison. One metric I like to use is to compare the ratio between proving or verifying and actually running the program concretely, like in seconds or milliseconds. And I think this is a, a good way of gauging how much overhead there is in proving, for example. So if proving takes three times as much time as running the program, I mean, that would actually be pretty good. Ideally, it would take the same amount of time as running the program. That's the best you could do. Because you have to at least, you know, convince yourself that it's that uh, the statement you're trying to prove holds. And I think in practice, MPC in the head achieves a ratio of 400 or so, I want to say. I think it's, in terms of order of magnitude, it's 1,000. Whereas snarks can be much, much higher than that. So I've lauded MPC in the head for a bit. So maybe I can try and explain how it works at a, at a high level. Or I've explained how it works at, at a very high level. Let's, let's go maybe one layer deeper. So I've said MPC perhaps two dozen times by now, and I haven't yet explain what MPC is. So 
MPC stands for multi-party computation that refers to like a whole other subfield of cryptography. So with multi-party computation, the high level goal is that you have a group of people, they have private data, kind of like with zero knowledge proofs, and they want to compute some joint function on that data. So for example, we continue with finance, you might have a group of uh, rich people, they want to know who's the richest, but they don't want to reveal each other's wealth. Because an easy way to do this is everybody reveals their wealth to each other, they, you know, check who is the richest, and then they're done. But then you'd learn, like, who's the second richest and who's the third richest and the fourth, and you may not want that to happen. Another way is you could trust someone, so you get, like, a referee. Everybody tells the referee how much uh, they have, and then the referee declares who the winner is. There's sort of two problems with this. One, you have to trust that the referee, you know, hasn't been paid off by one of the rich people, because maybe the rich person says, hey, I'm going to pay off the referee. I'm going to make him declare that I'm the winner no matter what. So there's that. And then also, maybe you do trust the referee to do the computation correctly. He could even do a zero-knowledge proof, you know, to, to demonstrate that. But you don't trust him to not, like, go to the press and leak uh, how rich you are. So with cryptography, and with multi-party computation more generally, or specifically, rather, you can replace this trusted person with math, with uh, a protocol running on your computers. And this isn't just limited to comparing riches. You can compute any function, or functionality is usually the term they use with it. So you could have an auction. You could even do a kind of zero-knowledge proof. Maybe you want to prove that some kind of integrity holds between your data. Like, actually one sort of way of doing a zero-knowledge proof protocol is with MPC. So I have my financial records, the tax agency has their algorithm, and we sort of run this MPC protocol so that they learn whether or not my financial records are congruent with my tax statements. And MPC is sort of an inspiration for MPC and the head protocols. They aren't MPC directly, but they make use of it. So trying to explain this is going to be tricky, so I'll give it my best shot. So if you're a participant in the MPC protocol, you sort you sort of know by participating in the protocol that the output of the functionality is going to be correct. The cryptography sort of guarantees this to you. And one thing you, you might be able to do is, let's say I have a friend next to me watching everything happening on my computer. He's also going to be convinced that the result was correct, because like he saw that all you know the random choices I made were according to the protocol, that my computer was running the right software, so every decision I was making was correct. So in some sense, my friend is going to be convinced because he's sort of looking over my shoulder. And one step further is, well, maybe my friend isn't behind me actively watching what's happening, but I give him a transcript of everything I did in the protocol. All the messages I sent, all the messages I received, all the randomness I generated, etc. I send that all to him and he says, okay, yeah, you know, according to what you saw, the output of the protocol was this. So this transcript is what we call the view of a party in this protocol. And 
if I'm, say, an auditor of the protocol, I want to make sure that the protocol was executed correctly, because maybe I'm not trusting of the, of the cryptography, if I look at the view of each participant and compare them with each other, I can be convinced that the, the final output they got was correct based on the inputs they all had, because the view also includes your private inputs. And what's even more interesting, and at this point I'm getting into ideas presented in the original paper on MPC in the head, which I guess this would be a good point to mention it. So this paper I'm referring to, and which I'm starting to delve into, is called Zero Knowledge from Secure Multi-Party Computation. And it was published in 2007 by Yuval Ishai, Eyal Kushalevitz, Rafael Ostrovsky, and Amit Sahai. And so one of the ideas they put forward in this paper is that actually it, it's, it's sufficient, uh, or it's not sufficient, a better way of phrasing it is that if the MPC protocol is correct, not only are the views globally sort of coherent, but if I compare sort of two views, they need to be coherent with each other. Because like if I, if I in my transcript, I said, oh, I sent this message, then in another person's transcript, they should have received that same message. And what this means is that if the output, the claimed output of, of running the protocol is wrong, then there must be some views that are inconsistent. Because if all the views are always consistent, and you know, in each view, I arrive at the result that, that that's came to happen, there's just no way to get a different result. All the views are consistent with each other, and each person arrives at that result. So, if the result is incorrect, the views must be inconsistent at some point. And this is the, the real key observation for MPC in the head. There's a bunch of other details, but all of them are sort of derivative of this key fact. If the result is correct, the views must be consistent. Ergo, if the views are inconsistent, well, if the result is incorrect, there must be inconsistent views. That's really the important part. I kind of mungled that, but if the result is wrong, there are inconsistent views. So there must be two sort of views which disagree with each other. And this is what allows MPC and the HIP protocols to work. So going back to the start of this episode where we talked about zero-knowledge proofs, Let's try and make the link between the two. So if the, the result is fake and is not what it's supposed to be, we have inconsistent views. So one way to try and detect this is that I, you know, after running the protocol, I send you, you know, the auditor or the verifier, all of the views, and you check that they're not inconsistent. There's sort of one problem with this. If you have all of the views, you have all of the private inputs. And that's not great. So instead, the idea is that in this MPC protocol, uh, the participants instead send you a subset of, of the final views. And this is enough to gain some assurance about the correctness of the protocol, while also not being able to learn all of the private inputs. And I've been talking about participants, but I sort of jumped the gun a bit, because really, 
A zero knowledge proof is a sort of protocol between one person, the prover, and another person, the verifier. And so what the prover is actually doing in MPC and the head protocols is that they're simulating this MPC protocol. They're creating virtual parties on their own computer that they're executing, but these parties don't actually exist. And so the idea is that you simulate this MPC protocol in your head, hence the name, and then you send some information to the verifier. So in this case, the idea is that an easy way to prove that you did everything correctly is you send all of the views of the parties. And the idea is that at the start, you take your single private input as the prover and you share it among the different parties. So each party has a fraction or some kind of secret sharing of your big input. And so unless you see all of the parties inputs, you won't be able to reconstruct the big input. And so then if you only send some of the views, then the verifier isn't able to reconstruct your actual input. If you send all of them, they would be able to. Uh, this advantage is that by only sending some of the views, the prover isn't entirely convinced that you ran things correctly, because it's possible that the output you claim to have gotten to is incorrect. It's just that you sent the right views such that the prover didn't notice the two views that were inconsistent. And so to avoid this, first of all, you need to run the simulation. You can't basically cook the simulation after you know which views the verifier wants to see. So what you need to do is you need to commit to the views in advance. So first you run the simulation and you create a commitment to what happened. And then the verifier says, okay, I want to open, you know, parties one, two, and three. And then you send him those views and he can check that those views are consistent with the co commitment you sent earlier to prevent you from cooking, cooking the books, so to speak. And another thing you need to be able to, to do in this setup, I had a point I wanted to get to. Um, So if you commit to your views, the verifier sends you a challenge saying, okay, you need to open this subset of the views, then that works. The problem is that you still might by chance not send enough views to prevent you from cheating completely. And so what you need to do is you need to run this protocol multiple times, doing new simulations, doing new revealings, so that the probability of you being able to successfully convince the verifier, despite not actually having a correct uh, input, is, is negligible. And so usually you need a couple hundred sort of repetitions of this for it to work. And, and here I've described a non-interactive, or an interactive rather, version of the protocol. So you need to sort of do the sequential back and forth with a prover actually interacting with you online. But you can make this idea non-interactive quite simply. So one thing you could do is instead of doing a sequential composition where I commit to, I do a simulation, I commit to some views, I get back a challenge which tells me which views to open, I send the openings, and then we repeat. I could do a parallel thing. So I send, I do many simulations, 
I send you the commitments to the views on all of the simulations, and then you give me a challenge where it's saying, okay, in the first simulation, open these parties. In the second simulation, open these parties. And by doing it in parallel, we just have this three-move protocol. I send you a commitment, you send me a challenge, I send you a response, and then we're done. And people in the know might be sort of anticipating the next thing I'm going to say, which is that you can use the Fiat Shamir transform to turn the three-move protocol into a non-interactive one. So what you do is that instead of having an actual random challenge generated by a verifier online in the flesh, I instead use a hash function as sort of a, an unpredictable function. So when I call the hash function on my commitment, I really have no idea what it's going to return. So it's basically as good as randomness. And so then if someone sees this commitment and then response thing, they can check that the challenge used to generate the response matches the output of the hash function on that commitment. And so this creates a non-interactive proof. I can create a static object, which I can send to someone else, and then they can be convinced of the correctness. So to summarize the ICOS paper, the sort of paper introducing MPC in the head, the idea, the core observation is that if you run an MPC protocol on some inputs, if the claimed result is wrong, it doesn't match up with the real result, then there must be some inconsistent view somewhere. And then the, the way you exploit that is you take your input, you secret share it, so that each party in your simulation has only a fraction or a share of the input, such that you need all of the inputs of each party to be able to reconstruct the full input. And this means that if you reveal a subset of the, of the views, it doesn't reveal the input, but it gives you some confidence that the result is correct because the, the likelihood of, uh, of not seeing the inconsistency in the views is, is small. It's not small enough though, so you need to do repetitions of this commit to the views, send a challenge and open thing, and then you can make this non-interactive by doing parallel composition and did the Fiat Shamir transform. So the ICOS paper was very, let's say, theoretical. It was proving that different kinds of MPC protocols could work, what exact conditions you need on those MPC protocols for the high-level idea to work. Those are actually quite weak. You only need semi-honest security. And actually, most of the... I'm getting very technical. Most of the soundness doesn't come from the MPC protocol itself. It's mainly just the opening and revealing part. Anyhow, and this was sort of the state of the art for quite a while, and that people really didn't toy with MPC in the head that much. And then in 2016, there was this interesting paper called ZKBoo, Faster Zero Knowledge for Boolean Circuits, by Irene Giacomelli, Jesper Madsen, and Claudio Orlandi, and I'll refer to this as ZKBoo, a paper which I implemented actually recently, and the one that got me into this whole NPC and the head thing. It's actually a very readable paper, actually. Probably the best uh, entry point if you want to start reading into this stuff, actually. Anyhow, this paper sort of recapped uh, the construction of ICOS, but then it did something which many NPC and the head papers then subsequently did. So instead of 
taking the MPC and the head theorems from the ICOS paper and applying them with their MPC protocol, they sort of instead created a protocol inspired by the idea, which they then proved sort of in isolation. So you don't need to sort of read the MPC and the head theorems from ICOS to understand the proofs in the ZKBoo paper. You can take the proofs for their specific zero knowledge protocol at face value. It's inspired by MPC in the head, but it doesn't rely directly on MPC in the head theorems. Um, the advantage of, of doing it this way is that it's much easier to check correctness because you don't need to have this broad literature. And also, the MPC in the head theorems are sort of difficult to directly apply. So having a, a concrete proof for your protocol gives you a lot more confidence, I'd say. And the core sort of observation of their paper was a neat way to decompose circuits. So in an MPC in the head protocol, the idea is that in your simulation, well, you need some kind of MPC protocol for people to run. The original paper was very agnostic as to how this worked. And if you just take like an actual MPC protocol and run it, uh, it's not, it's you're just gonna have a ton of overhead. So one core observation in ZKBoo was that a lot of functionality that would be expensive in real MPC protocols where you're not doing a simulation becomes very cheap when you are. So one example of this is oblivious transfer. So with an oblivious transfer, you have two parties. One of them has two messages, let's say M0 and M1. The other party has a bit. And so the sender with the two messages wants to send the message which corresponds to the bit. So if the bit is zero, he wants to send M0. If the bit is one, he wants to send M1. The other party wants to receive this and shouldn't be able to learn the other message. And the sender shouldn't even be able to learn which bit, uh, which message was sent. So this is sort of an oblivious, this is an oblivious transfer protocol. And what's interesting is that if you're doing a simulation, you don't actually need to implement the protocol at all because how you implement the oblivious transfer protocol doesn't affect the views because if you look at this protocol as a black box you know i put in my two messages i get out nothing the receiver puts in their bit and they get out one of the messages but what happens inside the box doesn't change their views and the only thing that matters for mpc in the head are the views so that was I think one of the, the great observations of the ZKBoo paper is a lot of stuff comes for free when you're doing simulations. So if you look at the, their main construction in, in their protocol, it's this sort of weird oblivious transfer thingy, but they don't actually need to implement it because it doesn't affect the view is how you implement it. And the core idea from, from there is, is what they call a, a sort of 2-3 decomposition. So the idea is if you have a field which could be or actually it's a ring so that also includes boolean circuits because boolean circuits are actually a field uh, so zero and one are your two elements of the field and is multiplication and addition is uh xor and that's enough to do all kinds of boolean gates anyhow you have this sort of ring so you can do multiplication and addition the idea is your input which consists of of elements in this ring are 
shared in additive ways. So each party of the actually three, specifically in ZK Boo, so one has A0, the other A1, the other A2, and A0 plus A1 plus A2 is the secret input A. Same for B. You'd have B0, B1, B2, add those together, you get B. And the idea is, well, you know, if I reveal two of the views, that's not enough to construct the input, because I need all three to add them together. And if you need to add two inputs together, since they're already shared additively, it works. So if I have A0 and B0, I can add them together, A0 plus B0. And if I do that with A1 and B0, I get A1 plus B1, uh, A2 plus B2. And if you think about it, if I sum up each of these little things, I get A0 plus B0 plus A1 plus B1 plus A2 plus B2. And together, if you sort of do the math, this is a sharing of A plus B across the parties. So with addition, you can just do this locally. And no messages needs to be exchanged, so it doesn't actually affect the view. Uh, what's complicated is multiplication. And the observation they had which is called the 2-3 decomposition, is that actually you can do a multiplication protocol where it only involves two of the three parties each time. So party 0 and party 1 communicate, party 1 and party 2 communicate, and party 2 and party 3 communicate. They exchange messages in order to do a multiplication, but that's it. And this means that you can verify to a large extent uh, the consistency of, of a, a transcript by just having two things. You need the views of two other parties, which doesn't reveal anything about the inputs. And this allows you to verify the interactions between party zero and party one, because you have everything you need. And from there, you have two problems. If you, because you need to verify the interactions between one and two and two and zero. And without this view number two, you're kind of stuck. So instead, you give out all the messages sent by number two, which shouldn't reveal anything about their inputs. And with those claimed messages, you can sort of verify the rest. And that's how this works. And from there, you do the standard composition I talked about earlier, where you generate a bunch of simulations, you commit to them, you get a challenge which tells you which ones to open, and then you do that. And I think at this point you have enough details to sort of inspect where the concrete costs of MPC and the head protocols come from. So the concrete cost is really running the simulation uh, many times. So you have to run it like, I think 300 times or so for ZK Boo. And for verification, you basically do the same thing because you're, you're essentially rerunning the simulation, just checking that you know the values matched up with the the transcripts you receive. And essentially when you're doing this re-execution, you're actually sort of running the program. So if you have a circuit, you're actually computing all the gates. You could also structure this circuit as a, as a stack machine instead. That's something I did in my implementation. And so then you're executing the stack machine many times. And one interesting thing with the concrete cost is that actually benefits from parallelization very much because each of these simulations is completely independent. So you can do all the simulations in parallel, and that speeds up the protocol very much. But 
and the simulation also has the advantage that it's, it's sort of very close and concrete efficiency to actually running the program. So here with ZKBoo, you have this sort of threefold execution. Uh, whenever you get to an AND gate or a multiplication gate, you sort of need to do this interaction, so that's not exactly the same complexity. It's a bit more expensive because you have to do this sort of... Uh, you have to do several multiplications for each multiplication, more, more than just the three additions you need for addition. So anyhow, you essentially your concrete cost of running a simulation is basically very, very close to just running the program, but you have to do many simulations, and that's what causes uh, the blow-up in, in cost. Another thing I didn't mention is proof size. Uh, so proofs are linear in size for ZKBoo, and also quite large. And the reason is that anytime you have an AND gate, you need to send basically all the messages those become sort of part of the proof because you need those to sort of verify the transcripts layer. And not only do you get one bit for like each message that gets sent if you have a Boolean circuit or one field element if you have an arithmetic circuit, but you have one of these for each of the simulations you do. Uh, or at least uh, rather when you reveal, you have, you have, you have all of these stuff. So that causes a big inflation improve sizes. That's actually a good segue to the next paper I'd like to talk about, which is uh, the KKW paper, uh, which is whose actual name is Improved Non-Interactive Zero Knowledge with Applications to Post-Quantum Signatures by Jonathan Katz, Vladimir Kolesnikov, and Xiao Wang, and that was in 2018. Uh, everybody calls it KKW because of the author's last names, Katz, Kolskov, and Wang. Um, so, I mean, this is very similar to ZKBoo, at least in spirit. Uh, they sort of ditched the 2 3 decomposition idea and instead opted for pre-processing. So with that, the idea is that you sort of, rather than, you know, each party being independent, having their own randomness and, and shared input, instead, sort of what you set up is that you give uh, for sort of each wire in your circuit you have these random masks and these random masks for additive gates for addition gates you know they're just completely random but for AND gates they have these this special structure in them so they're not just random they're kind of correlated in a special way which makes the protocol easy to execute later and so you basically set up this correlation which sort of replaces a lot of the, the interaction you had in ZKBoo. So you do this pre-processing to set up these correlated wires, and this then allows you to do an MPC protocol with an arbitrary number of parties, basically. Because sort of the, the, the sort of correlated wires kind of replace the, the kind of interaction you had in ZKBoo. So ZKBoo had this special 2-3 decomposition to do the interaction in, in this way, and you sort of avoid that entirely with KKW. And instead of uh, basically choosing two of the three parties to reveal at random, you basically don't reveal sort of this fake party which corresponds to the wire correlations. Sort of a bad explanation, but 
that's not really the important aspect. Because in terms of, of how that affects the cost, it's sort of like ZKBoo and that you have to sort of run these simulations and these simulations have about the same concrete costs as running the program. What's interesting in KKW is that by doing pre-processing, it actually ends up making the proofs a lot shorter. So one simple innovation they had was that in ZKBoo, your commitments are basically sent as like one commitment for each simulation. So you have this big list that you send over in KKW, instead they structure this with a Merkle tree. So you just send one element. And then later, uh, when you reveal stuff, well, you can hash everything and then verify that that matches up with the tree you sent earlier. So that's a big reduction, first of all. Another thing which is quite interesting is that normally if you have this sort of pre-processing and you want to do MPC in the head, you need to do two phases. So you have one phase where you set up the pre-processing, you need to show that like you did a bunch of pre-processings and they're all correct. And you do this by sort of revealing the secret sauce you use to make the pre-processing, all the randomness. And once you do that, that pre-processing is junk. You can't use it because it would, it would reveal too much information. But the idea is that, well, if I reveal a bunch of pre-processings and you don't know which, and I didn't know which ones I had to reveal in advance, that convinces you that the remaining ones are correct. That's what we call a cut and choose approach. But if you do this sequentially and you want to do it non-interactively, you have to do a huge amount of pre-processings that you throw away and a huge amount of simulations. So instead, the approach in KKW is that you merge the two. So I do pre-processings and simulations. And then when you ask for openings, for the for some of the simulations, you open it completely. So you get the pre-processing and you sort of get convinced that, that that's correct but then you don't care about the simulation. And for other ones, you don't get the pre-processing opened, but you do get the simulation opened partially, like in ZKBoo. And so this sort of does two birds with one stone, where you're convinced both that I did the pre-processings correctly in general, and that I did the simulations correctly. And another advantage of doing this is that I can sort of derive all of the randomness I sort of end up needing this pre-processing from a single seed. So rather than having to reveal this huge sort of mass of correlated wires to show you that I did a correct pre-processing, I just reveal like a single seed. And this also shortens the proof considerably. So to summarize the innovations of KKW, uh, you use a Merkle tree for your commitment to all the simulations. You use a pre-processing protocol. And this protocol is such that all the randomness derives from a single seed which makes opening it up completely very cheap because you just send over the seed. But otherwise, you know, linear proof size related to the number of AND gates or multiplication gates works for fields and rings. Linear prover time and verification time and your con concrete efficiency is related to basically how long it takes to run your program because the cost is running your program many times, essentially. Uh, as well as hashing. That's something also in ZKPU that I didn't mention, but hashing is also a big, big component of the cost because you need to do this fiatware stuff. And one thing that's interesting is actually with, with KKW, because you do these pre-processings and simulations and you throw away some of the simulations, it actually 
creates an asymmetry between the prover and the verifier. For each simulation that the prover throws away, that the verifier doesn't have to run, that's a cost that the verifier doesn't have. So it means that the prover is going to take longer than the verifier. Asymptotically, it's the same, but concretely, it's different. And you can actually create a trade-off here where you can make for more prover time for smaller proofs and verification time. So I can, I don't know what the scaling law is, but it's it's not that great. But there is a, a trade-off you can do here, which is kind of interesting. So uh, the next paper I'm going to mention briefly is it has sort of an interesting idea. And that paper is Limbo. 2021. The full title is Limbo Efficiency Knowledge MPC and the Head-Based Arguments by Cyprien Depeche de Saint-Guilhem, Emanuela Orsini, and Titouan Tanguy. So it's quite similar to the protocols I've talked about so far. The differences are twofold. One is that instead of just having you know parties on equal footing, like with Zikibu, or well, first of all, they work in pre-processing, if I remember correctly. So that's already like an innovation that KKW had, and they, they used that as well. But they don't even work in sort of the, the many parties situation anymore. They work in sort of a this interesting model where you have a server. Uh, you, ha you have, well, I think a, like a, a, an input person, like a master server. You have many workers, and then you have like a receiver. And so you have these asymmetric rules inside of the protocol. So they exploit that to gain some efficiency. So that's one innovation they had. Another idea they had, which is interesting, is that instead of doing this re-simulation idea, instead they have specific protocols so that the receiver and the MPC execution and the MPC simulation, sorry, can check that multiplication gates were computed correctly. So you move from the verifier just re-simulates everything themselves, essentially, to instead you create these proofs of uh, correct, correct traces. So like you have this trace of all the multiplication gates that happened, and you sort of prove that they were all correct. And by doing this sort of sequential proving, you can be convinced that the whole trace is correct. Because I know that, like, I, I I have a claimed hidden output for the first multiplication gate. I prove that was correct. It gets used for the next one. I prove that that was correct, etc. But the details aren't important. The interesting idea I want to mention this paper for is just that instead of verifying simulations, you verify this sort of execution trace. And this idea was, I guess, not even an event in limbo. I think it's just a a really good illustration of it, but where it was used to great effect was an earlier paper, um, the 2017 paper Laguerre, Lightweight Sublinear Arguments Without a Trusted Setup, by Scott Ames, Kermit Hazy, Yuvali Shai, and Mathura Makrishnan, Benkita Subramanian, sorry. <laughs> and in this paper, First of all, why Ligura is interesting, compared to all other MPC in the head protocols, 
it has square root of n sized proofs and verifier complexity. So that's first of all quite interesting. It actually means that in many papers they call Ligero a snark. I'm not sure if square root of n is slow enough or small enough to really be considered succinct. Uh, that's a topic I want to talk about this podcast another time, what counts as a snark. But it's certainly an improvement over the O of n you had with other uh, all the other protocols we've, we've mentioned so far. Uh, naturally, there's no free lunch, and so prover time is, of course, bounded by below with O of n, and is concretely slower than the other protocols we've seen so far. So that's the no free lunch. So you can get shorter proofs, but you get slower uh, prover time. So them's the bricks. And they also use this sort of verify and execution trace idea. So the, the square root of n at a very high level comes with the fact that instead of you know verifying simulations, they arrange the execution trace in a matrix, which is how you get the square root of n factor. So if you arrange your inputs into a matrix, the matrix is of size square root of n times square root of n, and then they do this very special MPC protocol to verify that the matrix satisfies certain properties. Uh, in all honesty, the Laguerre paper is the one I've, I've understood the least out of all the ones I'm going to mention today. So I'll let you read that, but that's the, the high-level idea. The important thing to remember with Laguerre really in the context of MPC in the head is the, the idea that it verifies an execution trace, it uses this matrix, and it has square root of n verification and proof size. That's what distinguishes it from the other things I've mentioned so far. And there is also an extension to Limbo called Rambo, which added support for RAM and MPC in the head protocols. Rather, Rambo is what I like to call the, the paper. Officially, it's Efficient Proof of RAM Programs from Any Public Coins or Knowledge System by uh, Cyprien de Sanguidem, Titouan Tanguy, Emmanuel Orsini, and Mikhail Rabalveda. And this was a paper published this year, 2022. And uh, it, it uses Limbo quite extensively in terms of its concrete argument. Uh, but otherwise, the, the main innovation is adding RAM to, to ZK proof protocols in a, in a very general way, really. It's not dependent on MPC in the head at all. So by RAM, I mean random access memory. So the idea is like if you have a program your program might want to do memory accesses. For circuits, this is a, a bit weird, but there's this correspondence between circuits and sort of stack machines. So instead of having a, a circuit, you could think of sort of like running assembly instructions. And then it's very natural to want to access memory. You know, I want to read and write to memory. If you're reading and writing to public addresses, so I'm leaking the address I'm reading and writing to, this is equivalent to a circuit. It's basically just sort of a way of, of describing a circuit. I could unroll all of the memory accesses, and get a circuit out of out of my program, but 
What's interesting is if I want to have secret memory accesses, so I want to be able to write to an address without revealing which address it is, and then read from it, then that's sort of what we mean by RAM in this context of zero knowledge proofs. And so Rambo, as I like to call it, is a protocol which allows you to take a, a zero knowledge proof system and add RAM access accesses to it. So you can have my circuit and then I can add these special RAM gates which allow allows me to read from this shared memory in a private way. Uh, the high level idea of this protocol is that what you want to do is that instead of actually accessing RAM in the program, what I first do is I run it and this creates a trace. And this trace tells me sort of what's happening to the memory. So one example of a trace is I wrote to address zero, this value, and then I read from address one, that value, etc. And I can replace each read in my program with just a constant value corresponding to this trace, or rather than constant, a private value, which maps into this trace, which becomes part of my input and is also kept private. And I can also replace uh, writes by sort of asserting that one entry in the trace corresponds to a secret value or a value that exists in the circuit at that point, which is basically saying, if I'm writing to an address, you know, there exists a thing in the trace which corresponds to the address I'm writing to. Or rather, like, sort of, as you, as you get to each memory operation in your circuit, you sort of know which part of the input you should be reading, and you can sort of verify either, oh, I need to, you know, grab this value from the input because that's what I should be reading from memory according to the trace, or I need to, you know, assert that the value I'm having in this wire corresponds with the value in the in, in the trace, which means this is what I, sh I should be writing and where I should be writing it to. So this this sort of connects your your trace with your program and replaces all RAM accesses with just reading and interacting with the trace. So that's quite interesting, but that's sort of not enough because one problem is I could create a trace which doesn't actually correspond to a valid sequence of memory accesses. Like I could, you know, I could have a trace where it's like, oh, I write this value to memory and then I read a different value. <laughs> so I also need to verify the trace is consistent. And the neat trick to doing this is that if you sort the trace in a specific way, it becomes very easy to verify that it's correct. And so normally your trace is sort of ordered by timestamp. So I do this, then I do that, and that's the order you have. You know, first I did this, then I did that, then I did this, then I did that. That's your trace. But this becomes hard to verify because like, if I need to verify that I'm reading the correct value, I need to look at the previous write, which might be very far away. <laughs> and I may not know like where that is if the addresses are secret. If I instead order by address, then it becomes much easier to verify correctness. So they just need to verify that the element before me is correct. Or like, if I do a read, I need to verify that the previous element right next to me is correct. So that's much easier to verify. You can have a sort of static circuit which does this. Whereas if you wanted to verify like the actual trace, you need sort of this dynamic circuit based on the, the values. So you have these two traces, one which is easy to verify correctness of, and one which is easy to use inside your program to replace memory accesses. And then to connect the two, you prove, which is really interesting, that one is a shuffle of the other. So one is a permutation of the other trace. 
And to do this, you use like a very, very common idea. You treat the traces as polynomials and you prove that evaluating one polynomial at a random point and evaluating the other polynomial at the same random point is equal. And there's this beautiful lemma called the Schwarz-Zippel lemma, which says that if you take a field and take two polynomials over the field, unless they're equal, evaluating them at a random point is going to not be equal to with a probability essentially one over the size of the field. So if I have a field with two of the 128 elements, which is just 128 bits in size, it's basically impossible for two polynomials that are not equal to evaluate uh, to the same value at a random point. But, and this is where it gets tricky, you need to have the ability for your circuits to contain random values. You know, this whole reading from the trace instead of reading from memory thing, that you can just, that's a transformation of your program into a different program. And you can do that for any ZK proof system. This random value thing is tricky. So if you're doing it interactively, you don't care because like you just say, okay, I'm committing to my input, whatever. Uh, here, and then give me a random value. Actually, no, I, I, I take that back. It's in general, for, it's actually not very opaque. It's, it's not very composable because you need some way to commit to your input. Uh, and then in one phase, and that gets sort of a random challenge to use for this shuffle argument. Um, so a generic way of doing it, which is expensive, is that you commit to your input using a commitment scheme of your choice. And then inside of your MPC in the head circuit, you you put in this recomputation of the commitment. So instead of just computing the function you were going to compute, you compute the function and you compute a commitment on the input. And this allows uh, the verifier to check that the commitment was, was correct at the, at the very beginning. And if you have this sort of commit and then check thingy, you can add randomness to the circuit because first you commit to your input, you get the random challenge to use for the shuffle argument, you do your ZK proof using that, and the ZK proof also ends up checking the commitment was correct because you added that to the function you're computing. So that's a black box way to do it, but that's very expensive because if you're, you're like computing a hash function inside of your circuit now. So if your circuit was like, oh, I'm computing that the sum of these numbers is two, <laughs> now it's computing, oh, the sum of these numbers is two, and also if I hash the numbers using this big gigantic hash function circuit, it's, it corresponds to this commitment I posted earlier. So that's not great. But uh, one thing I've been looking at recently is combining this RAM protocol with uh, KKW. And here, this, this non-black box way I think I figured out of composing the two so that you can commit to your input uh, in a cheap way. So basically, you sort of add the input commitment to your Merkle, Merkle tree. That's sort of the idea I've had. You need to flesh it out a bit more. And that... So that's the perfect segue to talk about Rembu. So Rembu is this project I'm working on where I'm trying to implement a KKW with RAM. Uh, sort of going through restructuring at the moment, which I'll get to later. Uh, in fact, I don't even think I'll get to it this episode. I'm just going to talk about what, I, what I'm trying to accomplish with Rembu, and probably the next episode I can, I can talk about the challenges I've encountered with it. So Rembu is, a, is an implementation of KKW, and the goal is to be be quite fast, and so I'm trying to get optimized, and I'm thinking of different ways of 
representing circuits and doing simulations to handle that. Probably get to, to that in more detail uh, next time. And so I'm trying to sort of glue these two papers together in an interesting way. My eventual goal for Rimbu is that it would be a good substrate for Boolean circuits, hence the Boo, and also for having RAM, hence the REM. And the eventual plan is first to have Rimbu as a as relatively fast system for Boolean circuits. And then an idea I have over that is instead of using circuits, to use some kind of bytecode uh, representing you know CPU operations. So instead of like I and these two bits together, it's you know I do a 64-bit shift or I do a 64-bit multiplication. Uh, so you have operations corresponding to actual assembly. Uh, you'd have a specialized bytecode though, not necessarily assembly, and then you'd compile that bytecode to circuits. And so that would allow you to easily have higher level languages because compiling to a Boolean circuit directly from a language is quite annoying. But if instead you compile to a bytecode, that's that's pretty good. And having the, the RAM lets you implement interesting things. For example, you could implement the RC4 cipher, which has this interesting sort of RAM thing where you need to access secret indices. So that's the kind of thing that would be quite difficult to implement with Boolean circuits, uh, but easier to implement if you have access to RAM. Another thing you can do is you can simulate uh, CPUs inside of the circuit. So there's been a lot of hubbub about ZKEVMs. So one way to do a ZKEVM on top of Boolean circuits is you have a circuit which sort of emulates the virtual machine. And if you want to do this emulation, having access to RAM is very interesting because it allows you to basically directly model what's happening. So instead of having any time I would have branching, I can instead have a, a program counter value, which I use to read the next instruction from RAM and execute that instruction. So you sort of really model how you'd write uh, a virtual machine yourself in a high-level programming language and then implement that as a circuit using RAM. So that's why RAM is quite interesting, actually. And another thing that made me want to try and implement RAM in a, in a ZK proof protocol is WASM. So WASM is, uh, is gaining some popularity as a smart contract bytecode. So I know that Cosmos, I think, is, is moving towards using WASM as their sort of bytecode. And WASM has a lot of uh, languages that can compile to it. So Rust, C, C++, even Go, can all compile to WASM. And so that's quite interesting. Uh, there was even, a, when I was doing my bachelor's project at EBFL, there was a, another student who was working on WASM smart contracts. This is uh, his project. So, big, uh, also shoutouts to the Dedis Lab at EPFL. That's the project I did my bachelor's thesis in, and they do uh, stuff on cryptography and blockchains. Anyhow. So with WASM, it's, it's a stack-based bytecode. So the idea I had, I mentioned before, where you have CPU operations, which you compile to Boolean circuits. Since, you know, WASM has all of those operations, that idea is relevant too. But where, RASM, where you really need RAM for RASM is that a lot of WASM involves accessing memory. And having RAM is very useful for that because you can directly translate RASM programs into Boolean circuits with RAM. 
What you need to be careful, careful is that you really want to distinguish public memory accesses from private memory accesses. So if you have your own specialized bytecode, you can do this natively, where you say, I have private mem, public mem. If you do public mem, it just compiles to wires and a circuit, no overhead. If you do private RAM, there's a bunch of overhead. Uh, if you naively translate WASM, everything's going to be private because it's it's possible to write using secret values as your addresses. And so then that sort of poisons the entire memory space <laughs> if you're not careful. So instead, you need to do this very fine-grained analysis where you look at when memory addresses are live and when they're accessed by secret or public values to sort of detect fine-grained tainting to know whether or not, like, a public access is, is, is tainted by a secret value. I, I haven't worked out all the details yet. Another thing I think I might need to do is uh, is have sort of like a manual like separation. So you could say, because there's no way in WASM to say, I want like two memory spaces, I think. And even if you did, most programs aren't written that way. Because you could have like a public memory space and a private memory space, right? So instead, my idea is that you, you say, after address x, it's private, or maybe the opposite. So then at each private memory access, you'd add an assertion in your circuit, which says, oh, this access is in the memory, in the private memory space. So it's beyond this address. Uh, so then your circuit will also sort of prove that your secret accesses are not affecting public memory, which is doesn't have these public, act, uh, doesn't have secret addressing. And so that would, would help with, with, with correctness and, and proving. The disadvantage is that like, it might cause certain programs which you think should work to not work because they're not actually correct. And for certain values, they fail. That's sort of a general problem with compiling high-level languages to circuits. But that's sort of one approach I've thought of so far. I haven't gone into the details of uh, doing WASM yet. So yeah. To summarize, because I'm getting into a bit of a ramble, uh, Rimbu is an implementation of KKW, which tries to use the RAM protocol from Rambo and sort of mixing the two. It's going to support Boolean circuits and try to be somewhat fast. And after that, I'm going to try and implement WASM or at least some kind of specialized bytecode of my own. And then hopefully using one of those I can support higher level languages. So that's kind of the roadmap. Uh, hopefully that progresses somewhat soon. I have more news to say on that. Uh, there's more topics that I wanted to cover today, but I think after an hour, after 70 minutes, I really should split this in two. I, I think maybe even, even I should have split this in two like half an hour ago. So as a bit of a preview, I think, uh, Next time I'm going to touch on how you can represent circuits in different ways and why I've recently sort of undergone a bit of a rewrite of what I had with Rimbu so far to move from uh, big Boolean operations, I like to call them, to more of a SIMD style of execution. Anyhow, hopefully uh, this episode was interesting. And if it did interest you, uh, you can subscribe and get notified when the next part comes out because this will next part will be a bit of a content continuation of this one. So thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next one. Bye.